Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. So it's Epiphany again. And as you may know, that word means uh, appearing or a revelation. And that's why we come to church, by the way. We don't come to church because we're trusting in our intuitions and want to have them solidified. It's not like that. Uh, We come to church to have uh, a foreign righteousness and foreign ideas that are not intuitive to us. Uh, And uh, it's in the musical Hamilton, so you have to believe me, right? (laughs) There's a great line. It says, I don't want a revolution. I want a revelation. (laughs) I'm like, oh, my gosh, that'll preach. So there it is. (laughs) Um, And I think we get a revelation, actually, in the texts that were just read to us about Jesus' baptism. I think they produce a a, a universal uh, implicatory revelation that we all ought to consider because in Jesus's baptism, we get a glimpse of what true authority looks like. And we all need a, a refresher regarding true authority. And, uh, and I'm thinking a lot about authority because of all of the alarming news that we've been seeing, right? I mean, it's been, it's been pretty eye-opening. Uh, this past week, we saw a variety of uh, challenges to authority. Uh, we saw violent protesters breaking into the Capitol building. Earlier this year, we saw autonomous zones being set up in a variety of uh, cities, you know, claiming independence from state or local authority. During COVID, we've seen challenges to the medical community as well as the CDC directives. And we've seen challenges to various news outlets due to their perceived bias, either left or right. And and many, many scandals in the church have arisen in the last several years especially. And that's given people pause when it comes to ecclesiastical authority. And people are growing cynical, and understandably so, about what gives. Is there anything that has solid, consistent, godly authority are there any sources like that that are left? Uh, and if there is a source of good authority, what does it look like? What does it feel like? So I want to talk about that tonight because Epiphany is a day of revelation. And uh, in the act of Jesus' baptism, we see a true and surprising authority. In this baptism, we get a glimpse of a man who is imperial, who is unconventional, and who is, if I can put it this way, contagious. And I'd like to speak about each of those points. Uh, but, but first, uh, we need to deal with the imperial Christ because the baptism of Jesus shows a man who is also a king. Uh, and this uh, comes from Acts chapter 10. Now, we're going to flip back to Mark chapter 1 in a little bit, but let's deal with Acts 10, at least a few verses from it. Because this is Peter, uh, years later after Jesus' baptism, and offering a lot of reflection about the meaning of the life of Jesus. Uh, he has this to say about the baptism of John and its connection to the Holy Spirit in Jesus' life. And this is what it says in verse 37. You know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Anointed Jesus of Nazareth 
with the Holy Spirit and with power. Now, the Greek for anointed is ekrisen or krisen or Christ. That's the word for anoint. This is the moment, the moment when Jesus of Nazareth became Jesus the Christ. This is his anointing moment, anointing from God by the Holy Spirit. Now, it's important to note that while Jesus was always God incarnate, always God of God, light of light, begotten, not made, there was a moment in time when he was anointed from on high with the Holy Spirit and with power, and at his baptism, we see that moment. This is his anointing. Now, christening or slathering somebody with oil as a sacramental way of setting them aside for sacred leadership, for some sort of holy authority, was a very important religious and cultic practice within the Old Testament. Um, And lots of different leaders were christened. The Hebrew word is Mashiach or Messiah, right, that were set aside by oil for a particularized authority. Prophets, priests, and kings were christened in that way. Elisha, the prophet, was christened in 1 Kings 19. Priests were christened in Exodus 40. And King David was christened in 1 Samuel 9. But what's interesting about Jesus' anointing in the wilderness, in the uh, waters right before John's uh, presence, is that his anointing supersedes all the Old Testament experiences. Because those leaders set aside for particularized tasks were anointed with oil by another human being. And here we see Jesus Christ being anointed not by a man, but by God. And not with oil, but with God. So he is being immersed, if you will, in the spirit of God who descends upon him. In other words, this is not a natural christening. This is a supernatural christening. Because Mark wants us to know, in the first chapter of his gospel, remember he doesn't give us infancy accounts, he's not interested in mangers or wise men. He wants us to know, right from the start, that this Jesus, this Jesus is an imperial Israelite. That this Jesus is the Christ of Christs. That all of the Christs of the Old Testament, all those who were anointed, all the prophets, all the priests, all of the kings were nothing more than precursors of the one who was to come. People that became symbolic representations of what God would eventually give us in the fully fledged anointed one of Jesus of Nazareth. And so Peter says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. We see that in his baptism. So it's an imperial action. And it's an imperial role that he's taking on at his baptism. Uh, He is being anointed for all to see. And as strange as it sounds, this imperial king, this Christ, is engaging in an act that's rather unpretentious. In other words, the baptism of Jesus is something that involves public humiliation, And this is from Mark chapter 1 and verse 9. I encourage you to read it along with me. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. So King Jesus's first royal act was something unseemly, 
and scandalous in that he was baptized and he was the only person in the world who didn't need to be. And yet he, knowing the meaning of John's baptism, which was to cleanse oneself from immorality and and, uh, ethical rot, to cleanse oneself before the day of the Lord, to prepare yourself to meet God, he was the only one who didn't deserve that kind of treatment. And yet, knowing this, Jesus swims in those waters. He is making, right from the start of his ministry, a very bold and public statement that he is on the side of the sinner. In fact, this action was so scandalous that John the Baptist protested it. He says in the other Gospels to Jesus, this is inappropriate, you should be the one baptizing me. And Jesus gave him a somewhat enigmatic response. This is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. It would take a whole sermon to unpack that, so I'm not going to do that tonight. But uh, the point is that Jesus wished to stand in the dirty water next to the unwashed masses. He wanted the company of the liar, the cheat, the felon. He wanted the company of the people who misused their bodies, the addicts. He wanted to stand right alongside them. And I want you to think about that just for a moment, how he could have begun his ministry. He certainly had the power and the authority to begin it different ways. He could have started with a grand miracle. He could have fed 5,000 people with Arby's sandwiches. Uh, He could have cast out demons. He could have dethroned Caesar, but he didn't do it. Instead, he did something whereby he could have been for the rest of his life misunderstood as a sinner. He stood with them and by proxy with us, right in that filthy water. So he began unpretentiously, humbly. Uh, And notice how God engages with him in this action. This unpretentious Christ receives a Trinitarian affirmation. Did you notice that in the text? The Trinity is all over this text. So the Son steps into the water, the Spirit descends on him like a dove, and then the Father offers his affirmation saying, You're it. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. What does this say to us? That God, in God's totality, affirms the lowly posture of the Son. You may remember the story of King David's anointing when David was Mashiached, Christed, christened by Samuel the prophet. Samuel was first impressed by David's brothers who were more manly, had more gravitas, taller, bolder, better hair, better jobs. And he was going to slather them with oil or one of them with oil saying, I anoint you. But God redirected the prophet and said, essentially, Human beings look on the outside appearance of somebody. They're very impressed with haircuts. (laughs) Um, They're very impressed with musculature. They're very impressed with education. They're, you know, they're very impressed with credentials. But God looks on the heart. And God saw a different kind of a heart in David. And so he was the one who was to be anointed. The same thing is happening here. You know, God is not impressed with the same things that impress us. And so God is here affirming the son who is embracing weakness and embracing uh, the sinner. 
and he receives the affirmation of heaven for doing so. And, you know, friends, we often want the opposite of this. We want to befriend, we want to support the strong man, the strong woman, who seems unflinchingly bold and iron-like. And we often want our leaders, our politicians, our preachers, to be disciples not so much of Jesus Christ and his baptism, but of Friedrich Nietzsche, the atheist who said that the ultimate goal of humanity was to become the ubermensch, right, the superman, the inflexible man or woman of iron who had the power to crush adversaries. Uh, Well, just for what it's worth, Jesus and Nietzsche are different. Uh, (laughs) And uh, in Jesus, we see that Power is found in dependence upon God. Power is found when you know your limitations and when you know the one who is unlimited. And power means leaning uh, into the everlasting arms. And power means not trusting yourself too much and not trusting your own strength, but leaning upon the God who came to us in weakness. That's real strength. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, Bonhoeffer wrote about this in a very compelling way. He was a Christian apologist. He was also killed in a concentration camp, but he wrote this. Christianity stands or falls with its revolutionary protest against violence and the pride of power. Christianity has adjusted itself too, much too easily in the worship of power. It should give much more offense and shock to the world by taking a definitive stand for the weak than to consider the potential right of the strong. Uh, Uh, And so we see an unpretentious king in the desert who steps into the dirty water with us. And lastly, there's something contagious about this uh, humble king, something contagious, because Jesus in this moment both receives the Holy Spirit and becomes a promoter of that same spirit, one who gives that same spirit to us. This is verse 7. And John is here preaching, and he's predicting something great about the Messiah that will follow him. And he says this, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What he's saying is, look, I'm doing the best I can. I've got a message and I've got some ideas that I'm communicating in this aquatic ritual. But there is somebody who is coming after me, who is better than me, who will immerse you not with fluid, not with water, but he'll immerse you in God. You'll be immersed in God. And I can't do that for you, but he will. Uh, Now, you know, I think that this is fascinating that, yes, the spirit was poured out on Jesus, but it's not like Jesus collects the spirit in a mason jar and tightens up the lid and says, you know, I'm okay, and that's all that matters. Instead, Jesus becomes a conduit for that spirit. Uh, and we see this um, throughout Holy Scripture, that, uh, that Jesus wishes not only to have the spirit for himself, but to give the spirit to you. And we see this in the book of, Pente- uh, the book of Acts, in the Feast of Pentecost, where he tells the disciples right after his resurrection, you're not ready to go all over the Mediterranean world. Put your maps away. Don't plot yet. Instead, I want you to wait in an attic and, and shut up for a while. That's my translation. And pray. And, and as you pray, you'll be filled with power from on high. But wait until that happens, and then you'll be ready. And notice what happens after the day of Pentecost. These timid, fearful ridiculously narcissistic disciples become energized, new, lively, wild, 
courageous, bold. And they go all over the world testifying to the cross and to the resurrection and the Christ who is at the heart of it all. And that's because of the Holy Spirit. But it doesn't stop there because St. Paul in the letter to the Galatians writes that all of you, that is all of you who have believed on the name of Jesus, all of you have been baptized in that same spirit. So the Holy Spirit is not just given to Jesus, not just given to his secret club of disciples, but is accessible to everybody. And in fact, Jesus teaches this in his parables. He says, um, he says, look, you aren't all great dads. That's what he says to his disciples. Isn't that nice? You're not all great dads, but even you who are not great dads know how to good, give good gifts to your children. How much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Yeah. And so we are people who are being immersed, actually immersed in God, immersed in the vivifying, creative personality of God whom we know is the Holy Spirit, the one who hovers over the creation, the one who brings dead bones to life, the one who revives the um, the corpse Christ in the tomb. That's the same one who dwells with you, the same one in whom you are immersed. And um, what does the Holy Spirit do within us? Um, how do we know that the Holy Spirit is operative? Well, there are a million things that he does within us, but here are two, just to summarize them. One, he gives you trust. He gives you trust that this Jesus figure is not just some legend and not just some interesting and mysterious bit of historical trivia, but in fact has immediate relevance to your own personal life. That this Jesus, particularly in his death and resurrection, offers you something of enduring quality that has the power to change the deep tissue of your own life. So he gets you to trust in this Messiah. And he also then takes the, the genius of this Messiah, the personality of this Messiah, and starts to work it into your own system to say that, yeah, you have ideas and you have all sorts of emotions and you have a lot of psychological baggage and you have weird spiritual ideas and you, um, and you have a mistaken worldview, you know, aspects of your worldview. But, but what happens in, in the Holy Spirit's work is he starts to give you this, the, the kind of intuition of Jesus Christ. He gives you different thoughts. He gives you some different feelings. He gives you some different psychological developments. He gives you a new kind of spiritual outlook. And you start seeing things a little bit differently because the personality of Jesus starts to dwell within you and take over some territory. And then you become free like Jesus was free because Jesus was really the only free person who's ever lived, right? Because he didn't, he wasn't hampered all the time by all these issues and all this and, and sin. And so he starts to develop that quality within you. And so what you think, what you feel, what you admire begins to change. He starts to replicate his nature within us. So he's contagious. And that's why, by the way, we're called Christians, which means little Christ, because he's like replicating his own nature within all of us, which is the, which is amazing news for us. And so in Jesus' baptism, we see an act that is imperial, that is unpretentious, and that is contagious. And now let me try to, apply this to us in our uh, current moment, um, because I really want to offer in the name of this baptized Jesus, an earnest call uh, to Christian unity within a world that is tearing us apart. And it is. Um, the cure for division and antagonism, which is all too present in our times, is this, to become more partisan. We need to become more partisan, but partisan for Jesus and the kingdom of God. 
Um, you know, it takes, uh, it takes Jesus to create unity among people, but not just Jesus, but Jesus, Jesus as the highest superordinate principle, the one who is at the top of the hierarchy. It's not enough for Christians just to include Jesus among the many ingredients of life. Like you're going through a supermarket and, you know, you have many, many things in your cart and Jesus is just one of them. It's not enough. Really for us to have unity, Jesus needs to be the core principle. He needs to be the heart in the body. He needs to be the head of the body, to use Paul's language. Um, otherwise, uh, other authorities will supplant him. And so my question to myself and my question to you tonight is simply this. Who is your true Christ? Because I don't think the answer is always so obvious. Uh, it's easy to have surrogate saviors and solutions for our problems. John Calvin said that the human heart is an idle factory, and that doesn't stop with conversion. And so if that's the case, let me ask you a few diagnostic questions that, again, I'm asking myself. Who or what do you spend the most time defending? For whom or what do you most often advocate? For whom or what do you make excuses? What emotions and behaviors does a particular person or platform bring out in you? Who or what makes you suspicious of other sources of information? Upon whom or what do you set your hopes to rectify what is wrong with your life, your country, or your world? And do we spend more time imbibing from our favorite news outlet rather than reading the New Testament? See, Christian unity occurs when we recognize and bow to Jesus and Jesus alone as our highest authority. And our goal, therefore, must be alignment with the truth as it's communicated in Jesus Christ and his apostles. And that truth will at times cut against one side of the political spectrum and at other times will cut against the other side. But we must be honest, I think. And this is where I think um, many of us, including myself, we can easily fail. We must be honest when our preferred side is in the wrong. Jesus' definition of right and wrong is more important than our personal preferences, after all. It's also not okay to say, I think, well, you know, the other side is also wrong in a variety of ways as a distraction for the mistakes that our own side makes. We have to be more honest than that. Additionally, if we have Jesus as our chief authority, we will forego cheap and wholesale condemnations of entire groups of people. That's been very, very much in vogue right now online. I've heard them all this week. I will quote them unto you. If you're part of this political party, then you are automatically an accomplice to that violent mob in D.C. Or if you are a part of this political party, you hate the Constitution and you love communism. Or, my favorite, if you're part of no political party, you are an indecisive sideliner with no desire to stop fascism. <sighs> Brothers and sisters, that is the judgment of the world. And we must eschew that kind of language and wholesale condemnation of other people. Imagine if God took that line of reasoning with you. For as you urge on judgment... Be assured, you shall have judgment more than you desire it. Friends, we can do better, and we really must do better than this. Just hating the right people doesn't make us righteous. Or to quote St. James from his epistle, the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. Never has, never will. The implication is that some of us might have to delete some of our social media posts as of late because Jesus would not have typed them. And we must apologize to some of our cohorts for our behavior uh, if Jesus is our authority, we must recognize at the end of the day that it is not someone else who was our principal problem. 
Not the government, not a political party. It's us. I've said it from this pulpit more times than you care to hear, I'm quite sure. But the truth is, the golden thread of all our problems is us. Uh, The most unifying authority, friends, and this is just the truth of Scripture, the most unifying authority is not a flag, is not a constitution, is not a party platform, nor a political official, nor common derision for a political official, nor our shared language, nor our coexist bumper stickers, whatever they might mean, nor material wealth, nor our good health, nor our veganism, uh, nor our Birkenstocks, nor our man-made utopian visions. Our binding authority is now and will always be Jesus Christ and him crucified, him alone. And to quote another apostle, our citizenship is in heaven from which we await a savior. He has unveiled what true authority looks like and no other authority who has ever existed holds a candle to our Christ. You and I, all of us, were baptized into the name of the one who was baptized for us. He is the one who is imperial, unpretentious, and thankfully, for our sakes, contagious. May he continue to bind us together and have his way. Amen.